This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Come January, Democrats will hold the state's top jobs. Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer. They also sealed a trifecta, winning control of the state House and Senate. Furthermore, the Democrats flipped a congressional seat here. With all that power come expectations. That'll be a major theme of the hour ahead. Let's start with Governor-elect Jared Polis from his victory speech. In Colorado, we dream, we dare, and we do, whether it's embracing big ideas or hiking our amazing mountains. We don't back down when something is challenging. We see problems as opportunities in our state of Colorado. As your governor, I want to serve to protect our Colorado way of life in my heart and in my mind, and I pledge to serve all Coloradans, no matter your party, no matter where you live, no matter your race, or no matter your gender. We are all in this together. We want to make sure every child, regardless of the zip code they grow up in, is a great education beginning with full-day kindergarten. Tonight, right here in Colorado, we proved that no barrier should stand in the way of pursuing our dreams. We prove that we're an inclusive state that values every contribution, regardless of someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. And for the LGBTQ pioneers for equality and the generations before me who endured so much hardship and hurt to make it possible for so many of us, myself included, to live and to love openly and proudly. And to the people right here in this room, I want to say I'm profoundly grateful for all the work we've done to overcome. Thank you. From my great-grandparents who came to this country penniless, fleeing persecution as Jews in Eastern Europe, and managed to forge an amazing American way of life for their kids and grandchildren to survive. We are still that country providing opportunity for the next generation and the next generation. You know, I am so proud to be here with Diane Primavera, who is a fighter for the right reasons. And we will partner with Diane Primavera and all of you to save Coloradans, individuals, and small businesses money on health care, and we won't give up until no Coloradan has to worry about choosing between their life and their home. And I want to thank my personal support network. First uh, and foremost, of course, uh, my amazing partner and the first first man in the history of Colorado, Marlon Reese. That is Colorado's governor-elect Democrat Jared Polis. He is the first openly gay man elected to that office in U.S. history. He is also Colorado's first Jewish governor. And he mentioned Diane Primavera, his lieutenant governor-elect. Let's talk about Tuesday's wins and losses and what they spell for the future of our state with our analysts. Ellen Dumm is a Democratic communications consultant. Hi, Ellen. Hi, thanks for having me. And Dick Wadhams, former chair of the state Republican Party. Welcome back to the program. Nice to be here, Ryan. It is the perennial question, has Colorado's identity changed? Is this a blue state or still a purple one? 
Vic? Well, clearly a blue wave blew through Colorado last night. <laughs> there's no there's no doubt about it. I don't think it happened nationally. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, clearly this was a sweeping victory for, for Democrats, winning all the statewide offices, the state legislature, uh, unseating Congressman Kaufman. And yet um, I think 2020 will be fought on its own turf. Uh, we've seen before when one party or the other thinks that they have a permanent uh, status as the dominant party. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats have been guilty of that in the past, of thinking of that. Um, I think 2020 could be a much different environment uh, in Colorado. Senator Cory Gardner is up for re-election. I think Cory is a magnificent young senator who's, who will run a very effective campaign. Um, I think there's the potential for overreach by this new Democratic legislature and, and this new governor. And that could uh, that could fly back in their face. Ellen Dumb? I think that, first of all, it was a wonderful election. I don't know that we are a traditionally blue state yet. It was an amazing historic turnout, uh, especially among unaffiliateds. And in 2020, you can't count on the fact that unaffiliateds are going to vote with Democrats like they, they did in overwhelming numbers this go-round. Huh. And in regard to Cory Gardner, I think it also sets us up as a very anti-Trump state, which puts him in a corner of not only having to work with a president um, who can be very vindictive and still get elected in 2020, which is a presidential year where mm. folks turn out anyway, uh, probably in the same kind of numbers. And to Dick's concern or red flag that Democrats could overreach here, do you share that concern as a Democrat? I think lots of Democrats share that. Uh, I, hopefully we have learned from uh, looking backward and not being as uh, responsive to everyone once we get elected. I think that uh, I, I think what you're you're maybe uh, talking about there is when some Democrats were recalled uh, after a gun restrictions passed. Yes, by a very narrow special interest group in small uh, elections. Uh, not very many people voted in those recalls, but certainly to have buy-in as uh, we move forward with any agenda. And uh, Governor Polis, Governor-elect Polis will certainly have his own agenda. And when you're dealing with 100 legislators, they're all going to have their own agendas, too. So I, I think there will have to be a meeting of the minds. Let's do put Colorado in some national context. So Democrats will have control of the U.S. House, but Republicans deepened their ranks in the U.S. Senate. And, of course, they have the White House. Uh, so perhaps unsurprisingly, President Trump is framing Tuesday as a victory for the GOP. Uh, to any pundits, he tweeted, or talking heads that do not give us proper credit for this great midterm election, just remember two words, fake news. <laughs> uh, so, Dick, give us some sense of how you think Colorado fits into the national picture. Well, I <clears throat> listen, I, I don't think it was a huge victory for Republicans last night uh, nationally. But I will say this. It was not a sweeping victory, blue, or blue wave, that the Democrats thought they were going to get, uh, especially when you compare that we lost uh, apparently – 20, uh, 26 seats in the – or no, yeah, 26 seats in the, in the uh, Congress, in the U.S. House. Compare that to what Obama lost in 2010, which was 63. Um, Bill Clinton lost in 1994, 52 seats. So I, I, I say that because it's it was a much smaller – take over the House than what Democrats anticipated. Okay, we're going to pause this conversation to chat with Colorado's current governor, John Hickenlooper, 
who is also positioning himself for a presidential run. Governor, welcome back. Hey, good to be on. Is a Democratic trifecta, that is, Democratic control of the governorship in both houses of the legislature, is that a mixed blessing? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, they recognize that there were a lot of Democrat Democrat people that voted for Democratic candidates who were Republicans and frustra- frustrated with the president. And, and I heard a lot last night that Democrats feel uh, that they are, you know, they're going to prove themselves. And, you know, they're not in it just for uh, a two-year majority, that they're going to be, you know, the voice of responsibility and pragmatic governance. What makes you say that Republicans voted for Democrats as opposed to just the huge number of unaffiliated voters? Well, I think the unaffiliated voters as well. But two different two people that I know talked to me just anecdotally uh, yesterday. Uh, both of them were one was an independent, one was a Republican, but they both both generally voted Republican. And they both both said that they were voting for every Democrat. And then on the media today, <clears throat> one was in the Post and one was in I forget which one of the online uh, Colorado news co- uh, collectors. But they described the similar thing. So. Uh, if if you hear it anecdotally, there's got to be a fair number of people, uh, you know, moderate Republicans uh, that were frustrated with the Republican Party. Now, the other thing you have to recognize is that Democrats had great candidates. You go down the the list. Uh, Phil Weiser's just been a, was a terrific candidate for uh, Attorney General, and you know. Pretty much everywhere, every, everywhere you go down the list, we had we had strong candidates. We'll hear from Phil Weiser a little later in this hour. Last night, Governor Hickenlooper, a man whose son was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting, was elected to the state legislature. Democrat Tom Sullivan will represent Aurora in the Colorado Senate. I'll say that he unseated a Republican who'd risked a lot of political capital supporting a red flag gun law which was ultimately unsuccessful. Is that an issue you hope Democrats return to now? Well, certainly the red flag law. And that, you know, that was just the, the that was the district where Tom Sullivan lived. And that was a fluke that the person he ran against was someone who shared, you know, some of his same vision. Uh, but Tom Sullivan's just a remarkable person. If you ever, I'm sure you've had time to talk to him. Uh, he is so grounded and has you know, accepted what's happened in his life and decided that it's going to push him in this way to, you know, make his contribution to the world to to try and make the world a better place. And do you hope that Democrats return to the issue of a red flag gun law, this sort of yeah, temporary think, restraining order for firearms? Red flag is very tricky, right? You have to protect the civil liberties of people and uh, you know, the ACLU plays an important role in something like this. Uh, but the 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 legislation that was in, was presented last year had the support of both of almost all the civil liberties uh, nonprofits, and yet it also had the support of the sheriffs in the state. So that's where you think you're getting a pretty good compromise uh, to you know try and keep guns out of the hands of people that would be a danger, not just to others but also to themselves. Should Democrats go back to it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. That's my opinion. But I'm not. So they, they didn't pay much attention to me when I was governor. I don't think they're going to pay too much attention to me now. <laughs> uh, we've talked uh, a fair amount about candidates so far. I just want to note that a lot of the statewide ballot issues went down in flames. Uh, through direct democracy, voters were asked to tackle some of the biggest issues facing the state transportation, education, tensions around oil and gas development. What, what now? Well, I think now we've got to call people together. 
and 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 bring people together in such a way that uh we begin to resolve some of these nagging issues. It is again, Democrats did very well in Colorado yes, yesterday, but at the same time, you have to recognize many of the issues they care about strongly did fail in the initiatives. So while we're delighted that that Jared Polis is going to be a great governor, I think he is going to be a great governor. Uh, I think Democrats have to you know realize that they didn't they didn't sw- sweep the table. Uh, there's there's still a lot of work to be done to find, you know, a consensus and a compromise on a lot of these issues. I wonder if that is in some ways the roadmap for Jared Polis, uh, all that wasn't tackled through the ballot measures. Well, certainly that's a, a, an opportunity for him. And, you know, one thing Jared distinguished himself by during the campaign was uh, he learned, he grew, he, he's curious, uh, he's a problem solver. Uh, he's definitely got a big heart. He cares about people all over the state. And I think these issues require that kind of person, that kind of approach. What other surprises, if any, might you call out briefly from election night? I thought, the, you know, Jason Crow's margin of victory over Mike Kaufman was more than I would have expected. In the 6th uh, Congressional uh, District? Yeah, everyone was predicting that. Uh, the fact that we won the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, the Treasurer's Office, uh Again, since I've been paying attention, I've never seen that, you know, all the way down the line. So uh, it was certainly a, a, a good night and a good day for, for Colorado Democrats. But the work begins now, right? And, and I think a lot of the Democrats I talked to last night did say and were very specific that they were going to look to try and get more bipartisan work done. As a matter of fact, Jared, Jared Polis, in his acceptance speech, pointed out that he'd already uh, reached out to Representative Wilson about you know, finding a Republican partner to present all-day kindergarten. Uh, before we go, I think we have about 10 seconds. Are you running for president? <laughs> well, we're working on it. It's, okay. Nothing's changed. Nothing we're going to keep working on it until probably the end of February, beginning of March. I figured that maybe since the new guy had been chosen, you'd break the news. Democrat John Hickenberger, <laughs> thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. For a little while longer, he's Colorado's governor, and I'd love our analysts' reaction to some of what he said there, Dick Wadhams. You know, I think the governor made a really good point, and I've been thinking a lot about this. I think it would be fair to say that 99% of the Democrats who won last night uh, across Colorado probably voted for those big tax increases for transportation and education. And yet, the voters, who, the very voters who put those Democrats into office uh, – soundly rejected those tax increases. I think it tells us, Ryan, and it goes back to your original question, Uh is it a blue state? I think this state is still very fiscally responsible. And um, I think there was a reason those things went down, because I think voters thought there was overreach. Even the Democratic candidate for governor thought some of them were misplaced. Well, he didn't support him. I have a feeling he voted for him in the privacy of his ballot. Uh, but um, but I, I still think that uh, it, it shows something unique about this electorate. Uh, Ellen Dumm, what do you make of what you heard from the governor there? Uh, well, I would like to address the uh, ballot issues just real quickly, yeah, maybe do, do, in, a, do. in a slightly different way. Sure. Uh, and I come at this with a bias. Uh, I look at Y and Z, for instance. I worked on that campaign to reform redistricting. Yeah, so that we have anti-gerrymandering measures. Right. Which to, passed. To have passed 71 percent, both of them. Um, it's amazing. I think that what we should take away from that is that there was a huge coalition of odd bedfellows 
uh, that worked on a campaign that were professional who built a massive coalition to get those passed. Um, the other, and it was referred to the ballot by a hundred to nothing, as was the anti-slavery one. I think the lesson it also passed after failing in the last election, right? And I think it was sixty-five percent. So all those had to pass by fifty-five percent, right? Yeah, constitutional amendments. So I think what we should take away from that is let's stop these controversial. Um, nuclear war kind of uh, initiatives or amendments. And if you're going to take it to the ballot and spend all of that money and it's millions of dollars, why not build the coalition first before you do it? Mm, Good point. All right. We'll take a break and then we'll hear from Colorado's next attorney general. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out The Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You might think of the attorney general as the chief executive's legal eagle, but in Colorado, the AG is elected separately. And Democrat Phil Weiser, a former Justice Department lawyer, won that race. We spoke amidst the hubbub of the Democrats' watch party, and I asked Weiser about an argument his Republican opponent was making in the final days of the race, that Colorado needs an Republican AG to keep the Democrats in line. The check that Coloradans want is a check on our federal government. And during this debate that George Baca and I had over and over, the question was asked, would you sue to stop illegal actions by our federal government that hurt Colorado, whether it's how the Dreamers have been treated, whether it's removing protections to clean air, or whether it's issues around the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. We want an attorney general who protects Colorado against the federal government. That's a threat. So the check that Colorado wants is not against the Jared Polis governorship. It's a check against the a Donald Trump presidency where we've seen actions like, for example, the Affordable Care Act not being enforced to protect people with pre-existing conditions. As attorney general, I'll protect the rights of all Coloradans. And more than that, our campaign is about substance solutions. How do we bring people together on issues like the opioid epidemic? How do we address water in the face of climate change? And people want real leadership. They want solutions. You know, the dynamic I've always been fascinated by is that between the governor and the attorney general in Colorado, these are obviously both elected positions, and you have your own agendas and your own view of what the office should be. How do you think you would see yourself working with Jared Polis? Uh, And I don't even know what what the constitutional separations have to be between the offices, but what would you see in that relationship? So the first point here, which is really important, a lot of the critical decisions, whether or not to sue the federal government to protect people with pre-existing conditions and make sure the Affordable Care Act is enforced, whether or not to protect our methane rule that protects clean air, whether or not we in Colorado care to take on Purdue Pharma and other companies who contribute to the opioid epidemic, those are decisions made by the attorney general. Will you sue the opioid makers? Yes. Cynthia Kaufman has already brought this lawsuit. I've Research this issue closely. What Purdue Pharma did, it was nothing short of evil, which is actually what the attorney general from Oklahoma called it. They made a whole bunch of money 
lying to people about OxyContin, saying it wasn't addictive, knowing it was. We will win this lawsuit, and then we can take the money from that lawsuit and use it to support drug treatment, which is critically important because right now, across our state, take Alamosa County, for example, we have lots of people who are drug users sitting in jail. In Alamosa County, it's 92% of the population. Your reporter, Allison Sherry, has done great work on that story. We need to provide an alternative. That's drug treatment. We get the money from this lawsuit. We use it to provide drug treatment. That helps move our state forward on this important crisis. That is Phil Weiser, Colorado's next attorney general. All right, who voted in Colorado and who didn't? Judd Choate is state elections director. Worth noting that his boss, Republican Secretary of State Wayne Williams, lost to Democrat Jenna Griswold. Judd Choate, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. How would you describe turnout in Colorado in this midterm? It was a fantastic turnout. Uh, We're looking at somewhere around 56, 57 percent turnout. That's the highest turnout in recent Colorado history for a midterm. In 2014, we were at 53.7 percent, which was third nationally. So at 56 or 57, we're very likely to be in the top five again. And I think it just goes to show what wonderful elections that we uh, we hold here in Colorado. Do you think that has to do with the fact that there is uh, a mail-in ballot here, that there is same-day registration? Is that how Colorado, is that about the system that Colorado built? I think it is about the system. Uh, we, we go to great lengths to try to get people registered. We have the highest percentage registered in the country at 90% of eligible. More than any other state, huh? Any other state, that's okay. right. And, and then we also mail everybody a ballot. And then we hold early uh, early voting open for two weeks, and then we have same-day registration on Election Day. And all those combined to have a really high uh, turnout for our Colorado constituents. I think the major story when I look at the voting trends is the number of unaffiliated who participated. Shed some light on that for us. It is pretty remarkable. The turnout among unaffiliated will be at least 5%, maybe more like 6 or 7% higher than we've seen in a midterm election before. Greater than either of the parties? Is that true? That's right. Right now, we're at uh, 816,000 votes that were cast by unaffiliated, which would be 20,000 more than either one of the other parties. Huh. What do you attribute that to? Is that just partisans under the unaffiliated banner, or are those truly independent people? Well, there's two things happening. First, we have a lot more unaffiliated in the state of Colorado. Uh, we added about 230,000 since 2014. Um, just as a point of comparison, we added 120,000 Democrats in that time and 30,000 Republicans. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you do that math, you can see why Republican state office holders uh, really struggled across the board this year because there was a big influx of Democrats and a bunch of unaffiliateds that broke about 55-45 for the Democrats. I think of unaffiliated voters as younger voters. Is that true? Unaffiliateds do tend to be younger. uh, But if you look at who voted in this election, there's virtually no difference in the age range of voter turnout from 2014 to 2018. So, yes, we saw more unaffiliated, but it didn't change the age of those people who voted. Okay, we can't call this last election some radical shift in the youth vote or in the older vote or something. I don't think we can. Okay, what about a male versus female? So uh, this is an irony for you. So in 2014, the turnout among women uh, for the total amount, uh, total number of votes that were cast in that election was 51.8%. 51.8% in the last midterm. In 2018, we're looking at 51.4%. 
So actually, women went down as a measure of the total number of votes cast in Colorado by just a little bit. So it wasn't the youth. It wasn't women. It must have been partisanship. Huh. Did that surprise you? Um, you know, sometimes punditry isn't correct, and this is one of those times. It was certainly a powerful year for women running, but That's you're right. saying that those who showed up to vote, uh, the demographics aren't all that different from previous elections. Uh, last night saw the defeat of measures like Prop 112, which uh, would have dramatically increased oil and gas setbacks. Uh, also the defeat of Amendment 74, which was something of a response to that, having to do with government takings. All along, there was some sense that those measures might disproportionately affect a county like Weld, where there is a lot of oil and gas drilling. Uh, It makes me wonder if there was like bigger turnout in a county like Weld, given the issues on the ballot, not just the candidates. Yes, actually, northern Colorado saw a tremendous turnout. Both uh, Weld and Larimer County um, saw record numbers. Um, the, in fact, Larimer County remarkably had the third highest number of people who voted in person in the state, given that Larimer County is like the sixth or seventh most populous county. We wouldn't have anticipated that they would have so many people voting in person. Clearly they had a lot of people interested, uh, in the lead up to the election and on election day voting. Why do people vote in person? Well, that's a really good question. Sometimes it's because they're not registered to vote, and so they need to come in and register, or they need to update their voter registration. Maybe they're college students, and they need to come in and update. Very briefly, election security. Any attacks? No. We we uh, had a very clean election from election security uh, perspective. And in fact, I'm hearing from my colleagues around the country that we saw that um, across all the jurisdictions. There was a very high-profile story before Election Day about that truck that had sort of gotten lost in the system with all those ballots on board. Can that happen again? Well, it's yes, absolutely. It can happen again, but we will do everything we can to make sure it doesn't. State Elections Director Judd Choate, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So Colorado's congressional delegation will remain a mix of Democrats and Republicans. Incumbents Scott Tipton, Ken Buck, Doug Lamborn, Ed Perlmutter and Diana DeGette We'll return to Washington. New faces include Joe Neguse, Colorado's first African-American congressman. Then there's the only congressional race that was really in question here in Colorado's sixth. Republican Mike Kaufman lost to Democrat and first-time candidate Jason Crow. Crow and I spoke fresh off his victory. I think our message was really resonating, that uh, people were anxious to have a new generation of leadership to step into office and to go to Washington and uh, start breaking the dysfunction and the partisan divide and also uh, getting things done. And uh, they also wanted someone who really would push back and, and uh, hold this administration accountable. They know that what's been happening in the last two years is not who we are as a nation. And uh, people have stepped up and uh, chosen new leadership who will uh, move us forward again. What balance do you think the House should strike between tackling issues in the country, uh, be it transportation or health care versus holding President Trump accountable, perhaps investigations, even the question of impeachment. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you'll see that as a member of Congress? I don't think that's a balance. I mean, that, that uh, implies that you have to choose one over the other. And listen, we can move this country forward again and invest in infrastructure and uh, work on comprehensive immigration reform and uh, defend health care and expand its affordability and accessibility for Americans. And we can also hold this administration accountable. I mean, there are still children uh, separated from their parents, and this Congress hasn't done anything really meaningful to address that issue. 
So, you know, we will hold the administration accountable. We will uphold our values and push back and uh, represent the values of Colorado and this community at the same time as we will work with people who want to work with us in good faith to to solve problems. Just name, if you would tick them off for me, say the top three or four issues from the 6th Congressional District as you were campaigning. What did you most hear from voters? Yeah, after, you know, over 300 community events from church basements to recreation centers, you know, we have to solve the, the health care issue. There's still way too many Coloradans that don't have health care or it's too expensive for them. We have to drive down prices and increase coverage. Uh, we have to pass immigration reform. You know, over uh, about 20 percent of the population of the 6th Congressional District was born outside of the country. Uh, you know, families are being torn apart. Uh, they're not able to re- reunite their families and, and bring their siblings and spouses and parents over. We have to uh, solve that issue. Gun violence continues to be an issue that um, has been gone on for uh, way too long without uh, simple solutions, common sense issues. And then, you know, the other thing that I've talked a lot about is we're not going to get anything done on any of those legislative issues until we have comprehensive campaign finance reform that addresses uh, accountability, transparency, and, and starts to end the scourge of dark money in our politics. How does any of that get done in a Washington where the Republicans hold on to the Senate and President Trump's in the White House? Well, it's about a new generation of leadership, people who are willing to find a way to get it done, that aren't career politicians that are going to go to Washington and say, you know, we will work together where we can. You know, we owe it to people to find common ground where we can, you know, and we will find that common ground. We will move us forward. Uh, and, and, and it's not going to be easy. We know that. But we're, we're committed to getting it done. And uh, we have a new style of leadership. We have people who have not, again, served for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in Washington that are going to uh, build a roll their sleeves up and uh, work hard to get it done. When you say new generation, is there a subtle, perhaps, hint there at, at you distancing yourself from, say, the, the Nancy Pelosi-type Democrats? You know, that's part of it. You know, we do need folks who have not been spending the last 10, 15, 20 years in Washington, uh, you know, the fighting these political games. You know, we do need those new folks uh, that can uh, actually step up and, and roll their sleeves up and get it done. That is Democrat Jason Crow, who will represent Colorado's 6th District in Congress, which includes Aurora. Back now to our analysts. And I want to reflect with you, Ellen Dumb, Democratic communications consultant, a little bit about what we heard earlier about turnout among women. Not any kind of record at all set in Colorado. And yet we know that the new Congress will have a record number of women and that women won several key Colorado legislative races. Reflect a little bit on all of that for me. Well, I think historically in Colorado, it hasn't changed this election, but women do vote more than men historically. And I, I, Colorado's always been nice to women, right? They went to the ballot in 1893 to say women can vote now. Second state behind Wyoming. And yeah. the only one to, I, I think the first to do it in the way By that you ballot. described. Yeah. Right. Um, I think yesterday was a very good uh, election for women, and I say that for several reasons. You mentioned the Fab Five that uh, were key in taking over the Senate for the Democrats. The Colorado Senate. Yeah, the five women who ran, and uh, and I, they were key to making that happen in, in the suburbs. Uh, the Polis campaign was driven by two fabulous women, Jen Ritter and Lisa Kaufman, and then you also mentioned uh, Jenna Griswold. She's the uh, first Democrat to have the uh, Secretary of State's race in 60 years. And Colorado remains a very 
island of uh, pro-reproductive rights for women in the country. So I think that was all good news for Colorado. And yet Colorado's never had a, a female governor. Nope. Still working on that one. Uh-huh. Or senator. We need a U.S. senator, too. Dick Wadhams, former chair of the state Republican Party, I'd like you to reflect on uh, the loss of Mike Kaufman in the 6th Congressional District. I was speaking with the current head of the state Republican Party who said that was really the the loss that smarted for him. Mm. I don't think it was unexpected. I think we all knew Mike was uh, uh, in trouble and not because of anything he did or did not do as a member of Congress. There was there was no harder working member of Congress in America than Mike Kaufman, the way he uh, uh, worked with the uh, very diverse communities in that district, I think uh, was a model for all Republicans. But what happened was he was a he was a Repu- is a Republican, and uh, I think that there was an anti-Trump swing in the sixth district. Um, not to take anything from Jason Crow, he's a very impressive guy, great background. But I think any Democrat with a pulse would have won the 6th District in 2018 because it was an anti-Trump vote and not uh, anything beyond that. No mincing of words there, Dick Bottoms. <laughs> I okay. have what, just one quick, very quick, Jonah Goose. Uh, in the second congressional. Yes, I looked at 538, the numbers crunching website. They said there was an 8% chance that district would ever be represented by a minority. So I think it says Colorado will vote for the person. Huh. Yeah, he's the first African-American member of Congress from Colorado. The midterm election goes down as the most expensive political season in Colorado history. And here to talk about this unusual year for contributions is CPR's Ben Marcus. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Money poured into this election, but it was really concentrated in a few races, wasn't it? Yeah. In fact, if you take Jared Polis of the oil and gas industry out, uh, it's probably not a record setting year. Between the two of them, they had contributions totaling $60 million. Uh, It represents... 28% of all of the contributions uh, this election cycle. So really, it became kind of a money war, um, not necessarily between the two of them, but it is interrelated in a certain way. Polis spent a lot of his own money on his campaign. It makes it unprecedented in the total amount that he raised, but also that he came with his own money to the uh, and 40 million from the oil and gas industry is the most one political group has ever raised in Colorado history. I mean, it's fascinating. You're comparing an individual, Jared Polis, to an entire industry in spending. Uh, Oil and gas was fighting one measure, supporting another. Right. They were really fighting a battle on two fronts. They wanted to stop Proposition 112, which would have set setbacks from wells and homes and other sensitive areas. Um, And they beat 112. But they were also trying to promote Amendment 74, which would have given them some legal protection if new regulations were to come into uh, being. And that, I think, is a a no small loss for them because the Democrats have taken the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. And I think it's probably the most tenuous time um, for the oil and gas industry when it comes to regulation at the state house. There were other questions on the ballot that failed miserably, like taxes for roads and schools. Uh, those campaigns took different paths in terms of money. They did. The construction industry poured about $9 million to try to pass the um, uh, sales tax for roads. Uh, that failed. Um, the school districts, um, school advocates didn't spend much money at all uh, to try to pass um, 73. In- tax increases for 73. That yeah. failed as well. Uh, I think this goes back to the way Colorado asks voters uh, to raise taxes. That first question really is a doozy. Uh, shall state taxes be increased by 
$1.6 billion annually. And that is kind of the genius of Douglas Bruce and the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, uh, if you agree with that kind of thing, is to put the price tag right in that first sentence. And as inflation keeps going and these numbers keep getting bigger, it's just going to be more – it doesn't matter how much money these campaigns spend. It's always going to be an uphill fight. Money, though, may have had a difference in the state Senate and statewide office races, though. Yeah, Democrats had um, a really unique advantage in direct contributions, um, unlike what we've seen in past election cycles. So direct contributions to the statewide races, AG, treasurer, um, governor, but also the state Senate races that were in play. The Fab Five raised three to one, four to one, two to one over their Republican uh, opponents. And the Republicans were raising about what they would raise in a normal election cycle. It was the Democrats that were really doing something uh, different. And that's superior fundraising apparatus, but also speaks, I think, to a certain degree about um, enthusiasm on their side. The Fab Five, it's the second reference we've had to that. So those are the key races that swung the state Senate in the Democrats' favor. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus on spending this cycle. Uh, As we reflected there, only a few of the statewide ballot measures succeeded Tuesday night. Coloradans did fully abolish slavery. They agreed to limits that will likely put payday lenders out of business, and they fought gerrymandering by approving amendments Y and Z. But as we said, new spending on transportation and education was rejected, and so were those dueling measures dealing with oil and gas. Let's get some perspective on that. Daniel Ramey is Senior Research Associate at Resources for the Future. It's a nonpartisan energy and environmental think tank. He has visited every major oil and gas field in the U.S. Daniel, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be with you again. Your research has given you a broad view of the oil and gas industry. You describe Colorado, I understand it, as one of the most divided states on this issue. I gather the failure of both Proposition 112 to increase setbacks and Amendment 74 to compensate property owners doesn't really change or resolve that fundamental tension, huh? That's right. I think uh, this question is going to be at the forefront for a number of Colorado voters for the foreseeable future. Some of the conflicts that we're seeing along the front range where there is rapid uh, urban and suburban growth, and there's also rapid growth in oil and gas extraction. Those two things have the potential to come into conflict, and uh, I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Do you think there were a lot of eyes beyond Colorado on these dueling measures, or maybe one over the other in particular? There absolutely was. So I think Prop 112 was the one that caught most analysts' eye, as well as folks in the energy and environmental communities. Uh, There have been efforts in a number of states to restrict or entirely ban oil and gas development, uh, including hydraulic fracturing, which is a key part of the process. And states like Pennsylvania, California, Um, To a lesser extent, uh, states like uh, parts of Texas or New Mexico, there are concerns uh, among some populations in those states about the safety and environmental impacts of oil and gas development. I think if Prop 112 had uh, passed, then it would have put the wind at the back of some of those advocates who have been making efforts to uh, restrict oil and gas development in other states. But that's not what, what happened. Again, Prop 112 would have increased setbacks to 2,500 feet, almost a half a mile. It's so interesting to to look at the fact that voters in Colorado elected a governor who has promised to reach 100 percent renewable energy. And at the same time, they took steps 
to prolong the life of oil and gas. Can you speak perhaps to what might on its surface appear like a conflicted electorate? That's a great question. You know, the extent to which the electorate has a full understanding of the nuances of the energy system is, I I think, an open question. Most people, if you ask them where their electricity comes from, they'll say, oh, it comes from the wall. Uh, When in reality, uh, electricity, of course, comes from a mix of sources uh, and there's an entire, uh, you know, large and complex industry behind it. I don't think I'm not sure you're asking public radio listeners, but okay. Yeah, I love you right about that. I, I understate the sophistication of your audience, but um, uh, but you know, but the basic fact is that most people don't think a whole lot about the energy system and a whole lot about the energy sources that they consume. So uh, it's not surprising to me that there would be aspirational goals such as reaching 100% renewable energy uh, or other low carbon emissions uh, targets, while at the same time uh, understanding that the oil and gas sector plays an important role in the local economy. And if you look at the voting patterns in different counties uh, Mm. for Prop 112, what you see is that the counties where uh, there is the largest amount of oil and gas extraction, such as Weld County, Garfield and Rio Blanco counties out west, those are places where you saw very large support uh, for – sorry, excuse me – very large opposition to Prop 112. Opposition. Whereas if you – that's right. And whereas if you look in places like Boulder County, where there's very little oil and gas development, uh, or Eagle County, for example, uh, you see much wider support to increase the setbacks. So I think there are different populations that are speaking uh, on these measures. But that's fascinating. In other words, presumably, the closer you are to the industry, the more you like it. I, I know that's not universally true by any means. And the further away you are, I suppose, the more abstract the concept becomes. That's right. So there's actually research on this, and and I talked about it um, uh, in in a book I wrote, which is called The Fracking Debate. And that book describes my travels around the country. One thing that I found anecdotally, which is supported by research, is that the further away you get from oil and gas producing regions, the more likely people's views are to be shaped simply by party affiliation or some other ideological factors. Uh, When you really get into the heart of oil and gas country, what you find is that most people, not all people, of course, but most people who live close to the industry tend to support it, although they have complex views about it. They understand that there are benefits and there are damages and risks that come uh, with living in uh, the oil and gas field. The huge debate around 112, the setbacks measure in particular, was to what extent it would stymie the oil and gas industry. And there were wide estimates that somewhere between 50 and 85 percent of non-public land would then be off-limits to drilling. Uh, The proponents of 112 pushed back and said, listen, with advancements in horizontal drilling, uh, that's just not true, that the oil and gas industry can be further back from homes and sensitive places and still do its job. Can you weigh in from a uh, a non-advocacy point of view on, on what the future of that technology holds? and whether it's possible for oil and gas to be further back and yet achieve its its goals. 
That's a great question. And there have been a couple of analyses uh, um, produced on that question by professors at the Colorado School of Mines, um, and they come to slightly different conclusions yeah. uh, that I think you cited in, in the statistics. So, uh, so you know, one of the analyses suggested that about 50 percent of private lands would be basically taken off the table for oil and gas development, while another estimated that it would be closer to 80 percent. And uh, they make different assumptions about the viability of drilling those long laterals that you're talking about underneath um, underneath the ground. So oil and gas companies have become more and more sophisticated over time at reaching further and further away from the location of the well pad by using these horizontal drilling technologies, but they still have to put the, the well somewhere. And what you find along the front range in particular is because there are res uh, restrictions in land use, because there is a lot of suburban growth, companies have put uh, dozens, sometimes scores of wells on a single well pad. So while you have a smaller number of well pads uh, around the front range wow. than you might otherwise have, those small number of well pads sort of concentrate the impacts. And so the people who live close to those well well pads that have 30 or maybe even 40 wells on them, uh, they're particularly concerned because of the scale of the activity taking place there. Daniel, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. He's Daniel Ramey, Senior Research Associate at Resources for the Future, a nonpartisan energy and environmental think tank in Washington. He's also the author of The Fracking Debate. And in the last few minutes, let's circle back to our analysts, former Republican Party chair in Colorado, Dick Wadhams, and Democratic Communications consultant, Ellen Dumm. I want to note uh, that Denver passed a slew of taxes to expand mental health care, park access, healthy food for school kids. Ellen, can you contrast that with the rejection of taxes statewide a little bit for me? Did uh, Denver, Denver yeah. I'm a lifelong Denver resident. I can say Denver's a different animal. Um, and I think you can say fairly that we believe in investing in the future and we are more likely to pass those taxes than you see in other counties. Um, it struck me as so interesting that a lot of those taxes... Uh, benefit those without means. Yes. And yet they ask more of people without means to pay. It's a mixed bag, um, definitely. And I think Denver, like a lot of other places, you're seeing uh, more and more uh, separation of income levels. So, And I think that those who have, uh, who live in Denver, and, and we move into our own bubbles, right, um, are, are more interested in, in making sure that the quality of life is better for those who don't have. Can I just say one thing that I was surprised did not pass? Yes. And that is the constitutional change for the judges' language. Uh-huh. Had they phrased that, should we shorten the Colorado ballot by asking this question <laughs> only once instead of for every judge, it would have passed. And I also just think, in general, those retention elections befuddle voters. Absolutely. Uh, Dick Wadhams, Jared Polis has a hefty agenda. I mean, fair to say it's more progressive than the state has seen before. 100% renewable energy by 2040. Free pre-K and kindergarten statewide. Medicare for all. Did he overpromise here? I mean, is the state ready for moves like that? Yes, he did overpromise. But let me tell you one thing I think the Democrats lucked out on last night. Of the the defeat of one twelve, and the reason why is because I think if, measure. if that had if that had passed, uh, there would have been immediate impact. And by the time we reach a year from now, 
I think there would have been severe economic consequences for the state. In fact, Governor Hickenlooper, right before the election, said he was contemplating a a special session to fend off what he said would be a recession next year if it passed. So, I mean, that was Hickenlooper talking. And I think Polis and his new Democratic majorities have really lucked out by the failure of that. It's still going to come back. I think your your guest was correct. Uh, but, yeah, I think Polis uh, – uh, did overpromise. I think that Walker Stapleton attempted during the campaign to point out that he had all these grandiose plans that he couldn't pay for. And I think um, there's only one way he's going to get those passed and is by going to the ballot. And that could also alter the results of the 2020 election or the 2019 election. Maybe he'll put them on the ballot in 2019. Hmm. He can't he can't pay for these things. Ellen Dumb, uh, I have to say in interviewing Jared Polis myself, he was often vague on on how he would pay for things. Would you reflect on that in just the last few seconds here? Um, I think that it it is part of the whole campaign to make sure that you stake out your own spot. I think that Jared does uh, have a vision for Colorado. He talked about it. He enunciated it. He may not get all of those things done, but he is going to get as many results as he can. He's it's just in his DNA. He's an entrepreneur. Thanks to both of you for being with us this hour. Thank you. Thank we heard you. from Dick Wadhams, former chair of the state Republican Party, and Ellen Dumb. She's a Democratic communications consultant. All the results and continuing coverage of the effects of this election at CPR.org. We're grateful you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.